everyone watching at carneyefree.com and also in the venue. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. Thank you for joining us on this wonderful Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, all the moms in attendance, all the ladies in attendance. We are so very grateful for you. Can we give it up for our moms and grandmas? And, yeah. Raise your hand if you got a great mama. Okay, you better raise your hand, okay? If you're not raising your hand, you're in big trouble, I guarantee it. If you're not raising your hand, I really, really hope your mama's not in the room today. How great are our moms? Oh my goodness, very, she said, and I agree. How great are our moms? We're so, so thankful for our moms and our grandmas and so many ladies in our lives who make the difference for us on a day-in and day-out basis. And even so, as we say that and we feel that together, we also know that as we look at that little sermon bumper there, every mom and every grandma and every single lady in attendance here today has likely felt those emotions that you just read. And many of them probably feel those to some degree even today. Perhaps especially for some of us on Mother's Day. And I just want you to know, ladies, well, wherever you are in that regard or any other emotion that you came in with today, those emotions are most welcome in this place. And I will always be sensitive. If I'm preaching here on Mother's Day, I will always be sensitive about the, the broad range of emotions that ladies bring into church on Mother's Day. I, I want you to know on the front end, this is not a sappy, happy, soda pop, flower-filled Mother's Day message. It's more of a blues song. What I'm about to give you is more of a blues song. It starts off with kind of a blue note, and it hits the deeper emotions of the soul, and hopefully it'll end with a smile. I hope. But as we think about these emotions related to canceled, how shame ruins, and what many moms feel on Mother's Day, I want to just start there and pray for all the ladies in attendance. Would you please join me? Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place. We're so grateful for this house of worship that we could gather together in the name of Christ and be free to worship here. We're so thankful, Lord, for this church community and the broader community of Kearney and central Nebraska though, that we live in. And we pray especially today for, for all of the moms who are in attendance, that your hand of blessing would be upon them today. We ask particularly for, for moms who have lost a child, whether it be one in utero or one after birth, few things could be more painful. We ask for women who have lost a mom, especially those who have lost a mother in these recent years. We pray for moms who have difficult kiddos, like me, like all of us were at one time or another, like all of us can be. But we pray for those moms who are struggling with different kids, difficult kids even today. We pray for women who have strained relationships today with their moms, that you would do the work that you alone can do to bring about reconciliation. As we talked about last Sunday, we know reconciliation is a lifestyle, it's not an option, and it's tough work. We pray for those moms. We ask for moms who are in the process of adoption, 
We ask, God, your comfort for those moms who have had to give a child up to adoption. We pray for moms in this room who feel like they're just drowning in the pain of life, which is so severe for all of us, but especially, it seems, for our, our mothers. We pray today for moms of special needs kiddos who need a little bit more help than others, and sometimes moms just don't feel like they have quite enough energy or emotion to give a little bit more. We pray particularly for those ladies in this room who long to be mothers, but that has not yet been in the cards for them. Would you grant them your comfort? Would you grant them your sustenance? Would you grant them your presence today? We pray, Father, that you would indeed be our loving Father this morning, wherever we are. The Bible even describes you at times as like a nursing mother, caring for, protecting, and nurturing your children. And we ask, God, that you would do that for all of us today, and especially the ladies in attendance. We pray this by faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, if you're just now coming in, while we're in this series, I think this is week four of the series now, canceled, How Shame Ruins. And shame is indeed just about the most ruinous emotion though, that we can experience. Let me just reset the basic definition though, that we've been using for shame. And I think as we talk about this, well, we'll see, we'll feel the reality that shame goes down into our bones and it is ruinous to us. Shame basically says, I am bad and I feel horrible about myself. Whereas guilt says, I've done something wrong and I'm in need of forgiveness. I need to get right with someone that I've hurt. I need to get right with God whom I have sinned against, and I can get resolution related to that, shame says, I'm the problem. I am wrong. I feel terrible about myself. Shame is this crippling emotion that is felt like a wound, but it's a wound on the inside. It's not a wound on the outside that other people can see. It's a wound on the inside that provides this inner invisible torment. And in that torment, sometimes shame can have this effect of dividing us from other people, dividing us from God, dividing us from our families, dividing us even from ourselves. The shame can be so intensely felt that we're not even really sure where our soul is. We feel divided from within ourselves. A dear woman in this church did some research for me over the past couple weeks. She did me this favor of seeking out a dozen or so women in our church to provide some anonymous feedback about how women experience shame in our church family. I don't have anyone's names, but they shared their feedback. About 12 different women wrote back in response to a couple questions from this lady in our church and uh, I don't have time to go over all of their responses, but I'm telling you, they, they were very impactful for me. To, to listen to women who didn't have their name attached to it, just were schooling me on the experience of shame as a woman, it was impactful for me to, to read these responses. I want to share with you just a few examples. One woman said, when I get into comparing myself to others and all that they are doing, 
ways that they are serving and helping and caring for others, I can easily fall into the trap of thinking or feeling, I am not enough. Another said, mom guilt is a huge reality for me. I feel it when I spend too much time on the house and not enough time with the kids, or I have been enjoying the kids more than paying attention to the house. I hear some women say, oh yeah, that's me. I feel that I need to be three to four people at all times, she said. Another said this, as a wife and a mom, and wanting to do the very best at loving and taking care of my family, there have been many times when I felt the shame of simply not being enough. I think I bring on a shame on me feeling for not being organized and not keeping up with the daily tasks and having enough order in my life. One single woman said this, I feel shame when I ask for help and I feel shame when I don't ask for help. I feel shame as a single woman and someone with a driven personality. I quickly get caught up in the lie that I have to do all of life on my own because no one truly believes that I can do hard things. One more here this morning. I feel like shame most manifests in my relationships with other adults. Please don't miss this. I feel like I always have to apologize for not doing enough or being enough, having enough time, praying enough, going to church enough, being involved enough, not being in the right mom's groups enough. The list could go on and on, but I guess it comes down to this, not being enough. You hear how tired she is? Like, that response conveys this exhaustion at a soul level, doesn't it? What's the lie in many of those responses? The lie that we can feel internally, but it's very real when we feel it, but it's not from heaven. It's from within ourselves or from other people or from the enemy of our soul. The basic lie is, I'm not enough, right? Didn't you hear it? Shame's lie is, I'm not enough, Now, you want to ask yourself, though, this question. Well, when you get stuck in shame's lie that I'm not enough, ask yourself, though, this question, in whose eyes are you not enough? Right? In whose eyes are you not enough? And my guess is the answer to that question is another little mere mortal person. Just another little person. Okay? Someone who is finite someone who will be here for 80 years, if they're fortunate, just another little person. Do we hear these lies that we are not enough? We don't need to ultimately take our cues from finite little people, amen? Again, shame is this perceived emotion more than it's stated in our culture. It can be a scorning look. It can be overburdening expectations from your church. And I pray we don't do that to you. We don't want you to feel like you're not enough, that you have to be involved in five different groups. No, our vision is really, really simple. We hope, though, that you'll be involved with one group and develop deep relationships with one small group of people. And then in addition to that, one area of mission. We don't want people to be worn out, always feeling like, I am not enough. It's this perceived thing, though, that is felt from church culture at times. 
It's a perceived thing, though, that's felt from a muttering word that comes from a husband who didn't think about it, or a scorning look from a coworker, or a rolling of the eyes by a couple teenage kids. And sometimes it's the shame that comes from our own self-talk that says, I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. I'm so dumb, I'm not enough. And from this goes that cycle that we talked about a few weeks ago. Shame cycle is, in essence, from vulnerability, this feeling that perhaps I'm not quite enough, to fear, and then out of fear, out of being scared of other people's disapproval or just being scared that I don't have what it takes, then into hiding. We take out the fig leaves and we hide from others and we put away our vulnerability and we say, nobody can see the real me with my weaknesses. And all of that, my friends, it emerges out of this thing that is so powerful for all of us, the fear of people's disapproval. Sometimes it's the fear of my own disapproval, that I won't measure up in my own eyes, but oftentimes it's the fear of someone else's disapproval that leads me to say I'm not enough. Proverbs 29 says this, it says, fear of man will prove to be a snare. Say that with me. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Or you could say fear of woman. Men, right? Okay, both ways. Fear of men or women will prove to be a snare that grabs us and can trap us. I love the way the message paraphrase of the Bible puts it. It says, the fear of human opinion disables. Oh, isn't that it? That's exactly right. The fear of human opinion has a way of cutting us off at the knees and disabling us such that we're not able to do what we know we need to do. Now, a snare, of course, in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man will prove to be a trap. The fear of man will prove to be a snare. What is a snare? A snare is a basic hunting device. Hunters will go out, what, with a snare, and they seek to catch an animal as they are going hunting, and then they will kill the animal, and they bring home deer for their family. Okay, back in the old days. Doesn't happen that way as much anymore, but people used to use snares a lot. Still today, people use snares to protect their garden from little bunny foo-foo. Okay, so little bunny foo-foo is coming up and looking for some lettuce, and so the wise gardener puts up a snare, which is this little metal hoop with a trigger that's attached to a branch, and as little bunny foo-foo goes through that hoop and hits the trigger, then all of a sudden, little bunny foo-foo is dead meat. Okay, it's hanging upside down by its ankles, and your garden is protected. And what the Bible is saying here is the fear of human disapproval is like that. It catches you by your ankles, turns you upside down, and you feel immobilized, paralyzed, weak, unable to do what God calls you to do. Now, the Bible does talk about another fear. It's called the fear of God, that we would have a rightful fear of God, that we would tremble above before him because he is holy, because he is the creator, because he holds 
the keys to eternity. He is the beginning and the end. But the idea with that fear is the sense that I would look up to God and I would naturally fall to my knees because I would say, he is holy and I am not, and so in his presence I tremble a bit. It's the sense of, of reverence, a sense of awe before the greatness of God. But that's not what's being spoken of here in Proverbs 29. In Proverbs 29, it's a different word, though, that's being used, and this word conveys this dread or intimidation, like that deep feeling of anxiety in your belly that someone disapproves of you, someone shames you or holds you in contempt. Proverbs 29, 25, look at the entire verse now. Fear of man, fear of people will prove to be a snare. But what's the other side of that? Yeah. Those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. The fear of man is a trap, but those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. Or as the message paraphrase puts it, the fear of human opinion disables, but trusting in God protects you from all of that. Oh, what a gift. We trust in the Lord and we are protected from the fear of man. We trust in him, we fear him alone, and then all of a sudden we don't need to fear other people. I am convinced the more someone fears God, the only one who's worthy to be feared, the less they will fear other people. You fear God and the fear of man finds less and less place in our lives. The idea in this passage, the fear of man is a trap, but those who trust in the Lord are kept safe is really, really simple. It's that if you trust in the Lord, if you place your security in him at all times, you're kind of like a lioness on the hillside looking down at that snare. You see that someone has tried to set a snare based on their human disapproval of you, and you get to kind of just chuckle at that. You say, I am safe, I am secure in the presence of God, I trust in him, and I know my lot is secure in his love. Sounds pretty good, right? God's plan is to keep us safe from shame's lies, which are oftentimes encased in man's contempt, which frequently sounds like, you're stupid, you're small, you're crazy, you're not enough. You idiot, you fool. Do we realize how painful those words are? Do we realize that biblically speaking, we are never, ever to say those words about our enemies, let alone our friends and family? Jesus said this, this is in my script, but this is true. Jesus said this, if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Why do you say that? Because it's fundamentally shaming. And when you shame someone, you're cutting them off at the knees and you're insulting the image of God in them. Christians shall never shame. Christians never live in a tribalized place. Christians love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. Christians are different. This is possible in a biblical community. Listen to our mission statement here. 
Our mission statement is really simple. We're building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. And friends, if we actually are going after this, that we are seeking transformation, each and every one of us, that none of us has arrived, all of us are in process, but we will grow as we do these two things. We grow in love for Christ and we grow in love for all people, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our enemies. We grow in love with all people. Then shame has no place in this community. Amen? I pray that you can preach that to yourself. I pray that you can preach that to your family. I pray that you can tell that to yourself when you start to feel shamed. Ladies and gentlemen, shame has no place for those who are unconditionally beloved by God. We grow in love for God and all people, and shame ain't welcome here. So let me give judges a little bit of training related to this. There's a number of possible common responses, though, that one could give to the admission of vulnerability and weakness. So your child or your spouse or a friend comes to you and they admit to you that they are weak in some area. They admit to you that they have an area of vulnerability. Or maybe they don't even say those words, but you can just tell as you're hearing their voice that there's weakness in them. How do you respond? I promise you, how you respond in that moment, well, when you see that weakness, will either help strengthen that person or it'll help break that person. Here's a handful of very, very common responses. One common response is simply to condemn it. So I hear your weakness and I'm going to condemn, I'm gonna kind of judge your weakness. Sometimes kids fail and parents basically say, well, if you would have just listened to me, which certainly doesn't help the kids in the moment, or we hear about someone who's on food stamps and then what happens? Perhaps we run a narrative in our mind about why they're on food stamps. And we start to judge them in our mind about why they're on food stamps. They must be lazy. Or you hear someone that got sick and then you learn that they were a smoker. And so you excuse their sickness but because they were a smoker. Or you hear someone got COVID and you say to yourself, well that serves them right for not wearing their mask 25 hours a day. Right, come on. Isn't this what we've been hearing over these past couple years? Or you hear about someone else who got sick and said, well they should have just eaten organic all the time even if they cannot afford to eat organic all the time. Okay, that's judging the person that is weak. It's condemning the weak, and we all do that in different ways, and we just have to be aware of it and kind of check ourselves. Another way is that we would minimize people's weakness. And so sometimes you might hear like another mother say, life is just really hard for me right now. I have three kids under the age of six, and it's really tiring. I feel like for the younger ones, I'm constantly changing diapers. And you might be tempted in that moment to say, well, guess what? I know a woman who has five kids under the age of six. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't say that. Okay, that's minimizing the weakness. And you might get punched in the nose and you probably deserve it. Okay, there's all different kinds of ways that we can minimize people's weakness. You hear someone who has stage two cancer. And you're tempted to say, well, I'm so glad that they can operate on that. Let me tell you about my friend who has stage four cancer. Okay, it means well, but in minimizing that person's vulnerability, they feel bad, even ashamed for feeling the weakness that they do. 
A third very common response, and men, I hope you're taking notice, is we like to fix it. So I hear about your weakness, I hear about your vulnerability, and it's now time to cue up the suggestions. Here's how I quit smoking. Can I tell you my five steps? You might apply them right now. I'll check back in with you in three days. Oh, you have three kids under the age of six. Could it be that you're six-year-old, it's time for them to go start working? <laughs> time for them to start chipping in in the house? Or maybe you quote a Bible verse to them. Well, don't you know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose? And perseverance must finish its good work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Don't you feel comforted now? Bye-bye. That's what we do. Again, these are well-meaning responses, but they do not help the vulnerable. I see a number of people nodding right now. They do not help the vulnerable. Much better responses well, would be something like this. I know what you're going through is really hard, and I'm so sorry for your pain. And I know I can't fix it, but I promise you these three words, I'm with you. These are the three words that I promise to you. I'm with you in this. I know it's intense. I can't fix it. Never would I condemn it. Never would I minimize it. We do well to simply tell people and to show people, showing them, probably more important than telling them, I'm with you in the midst of this weakness, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this vulnerability, though, that you feel. And wives need that from husbands, and I dare say that husbands need it from their wives as well. Ladies, like when your husband's here, I believe in you. You've got this. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm proud of you. All of a sudden, you will see your husband looks a little taller. We need this from each other. I think one of the greatest examples of this in all the Bible is Ruth and Naomi. You might remember that Naomi well, was this widow. She's a Jewish woman during the darkest period of Israel's history when during the period of the judges, every man and every woman was kind of going their own way and the most faithful people in the land well, were these two ladies named Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi has lost her husband. She's married off her two sons to these two women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, and another one named Ruth. And sadly, both of her sons die. Okay, she has no one else remaining, and Orpah has lost her husband, and Ruth has lost her husband, and they're from another land who has come into Israel's land, and Naomi tells these ladies, it's okay if you want to go back to your families. It's fine if you want to go back to, to your, your home country. I have no more sons to give to you. And she's in the most vulnerable state that a woman could be in in that culture. The state of not being able to provide for herself because it was a patriarchal culture. Okay, She was not able to provide for herself. And then she has these two daughters-in-law who likewise were unable to provide for themselves. Nothing could shout louder, I am not enough. And so he, 
or she sends these two ladies away. She tries to send these two ladies away, but in one of the most beautiful statements in the entire Bible, Ruth chapter one, I'd encourage you to read this later today, the entire chapter of Ruth chapter one, Ruth replies to her mother-in-law, Naomi, please don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you. Don't you want to be like Ruth when you grow up? Wow, what an incredible response. I cannot fix your problems, Naomi. I certainly do not condemn your problems. I could not minimize your problem. But what I will do is promise to be with you. I am with you. I am with you. I plead. Can I go with you? I want to go with you wherever you might go. What did that do for Naomi? (sighs) That's what it did. Like the deepest exhale that someone is near to me in my vulnerable, even shameful circumstance. Someone by your side who loves you, who gives you courage for the battle ahead. Once again, shame's lie is this basic idea that I am not enough. At least that's shame's lie for today. I am not enough. But God's truth goes like this. You are fully known, and you're fully known when you're not enough. And even so, you're fully loved. And because you're fully known and you're fully loved, inadequacies and all, because I am fully known and I'm fully loved with all of my inadequacies, all of my shortcomings, then I can move forward in this world with courage. Like, this is just the reality of life, that if we have a handful of people around us who know us very deeply and still they love us, we move forward with a sense of safety. We move forward with a sense of courage. If you know that God loves you unconditionally, even as he knows every sin that nobody else knows, you move forward with safety and courage. Again, the, this woman who asked a number of ladies in our church for help in understanding shame, also asked uh, these ladies how their husbands and children and friends can help. Men, you better buckle up. One said this, when I get stuck in that destructive shame cycle that we talked about from vulnerability to fear to hiding, when I get stuck in that destructive shame cycle, my husband relentlessly dumps buckets of truth over me, like a cognitive therapy from the Bible. He relentlessly dumps buckets of truth over me. He insists that I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus and that he and God will never stop loving me. After this baptism of words, I finally crack. I cry and he holds me. Mm. Another woman said, thankfully, I do not have a critical family. I feel safe when they listen, not interrupting with advice, or judgmental comments. My husband may listen and he may remain silent for a while. Today he said nothing, but I heard him later on loading the dishwasher just to relieve me. Finally, one woman said, simply ask me, simply ask me how I am really doing 
and then intently listen to my response. Just being seen and heard and hearing in return, I love you still and not trying to fix my problem makes me feel safe. Again, it's a really simple formula. Fully known plus fully loved equals courage. It equals this experience of safety. And of course, we can offer to help, but we need to offer to help with the expectation that that person can say no. And then we shut our mouths. Honey, can I help you with this? No, I really don't want your help. I just want you to listen. Okay, I'm here with you. I'm with you. Here's the way singer and songwriter Lauren Daigle, brilliant woman, put it in her wonderful song, You Say. She said, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am, streak- you say I am strong when I think I am weak. It's what you say, God. It's what you say about me that's most important. And how encouraging it is when we match the words of God for our brothers and sisters in the midst of their weakness. That we just amplify, we repeat the words of God for them well, when they're struggling. And men, for us to do this for our wives, for us to do this for our daughters, for us to do this for our mothers is a very powerful thing. One of the things that's really grievous to me is um, the fact that still here in 2022, many women just feel less than. Many women feel objectified, they feel belittled, they feel subjugated in the home, they feel less than. And it was never intended to be that way. Like you go back to the original story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in God's creation of the first couple. He creates Adam and then he creates Eve, and where does he take Eve from? From the side. It literally doesn't say from the rib, it's from the side of Eve, It's very interesting. God did not choose to create Eve from Adam's head so as to rule over Adam. Come on. And he did not choose to create Eve from Adam's foot so that he would rule over her. Come on. He chose to create Eve from Adam's side so that she would be with him and he would be with her. That they would be companions, shoulder to shoulder through the trials of life, side by side through the pains that they each would feel. And friends, whether you're married or single today, this is how we're created. And this is what we need through our vulnerability. We need a couple other people, whether it be a spouse or a friend, whoever. I'm not talking specifically to to married people, we all need this. We need a couple other people that we can be fully known and yet fully loved, and therefore we would have safety and courage, no fear of rejection. We would have a fellow armor bearer through the challenges of life that we are going shoulder to shoulder with in the difficulties that we all engage. And when we have that, we just feel safe. We feel like we're enough. We know that we're enough in the eyes of God. We pray that we would be enough in the eyes of a few other people as well. 
And friends, if you don't yet have that with a few other people, Carrie said this during the announcements, I pray that you would go out to that life group, Better Together Table, and we would get you connected well with a few other people in a life group. And slowly but surely over time, our life groups can emerge as that. I have a couple people in my life group that serve that for me, and hopefully I serve that for them. It's not just husbands and wives. It's across the board that we need this from a few other people, and we want to become that kind of community where we have safe marriages, where we have safe life groups, where we are this kind of people that never shames someone else, but we allow people to be safe in their vulnerability with us. And friends, even if you don't have that yet today, you can be confident of this. God comes after you, and he knows you completely with all of your warts and foibles, and he loves you all the same. And if you are fully known by God, and then you are fully loved by God, then you need not fear rejection from people. You need not fear not being enough before other people. Because whatever God says about you is the truest thing about you. You hear that? Whatever God says about you is the truest thing about you. Others might belittle you. Others might look down upon you. But God says, I'll have you as you are. You are mine. I want to invite the band forward right now. And uh, they're going to lead us in a song in both rooms. And we're going to invite you just to sit down as we hear this song. Uh, It's a powerful one that speaks of what God says about us, regardless of what anyone else might say about us. But as they come forward and as we prepare ourselves for this song, perhaps you just love listen to this passage from 1 John 4 that speaks to what God says about us. This is 1 John 4, verses 13 to 19. And however you receive the word, maybe you just do that right now. You close your eyes, you open your hands, you just simply receive God's word and what he says about you. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Our God and Father has given his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Whoever you are, if you've given your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And we've seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. You don't rely on what other people say about you. You don't rely on what you would say about you. You know and rely on what God says about you. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in God's love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are what you say about us. And you say that we are your children. You say that you've given your spirit. 
you say that we now can be enveloped in your love. Yes, you know us with all of our sins. You know us with all of our weaknesses. You know us with all of our inadequacies. And yet you still love us. So much so that you gave Jesus Christ on the cross to die for our sins and our failures, to bring us to God, to enable us to have courage, whatever we're facing today. And so I pray for our entire church, but especially the ladies in attendance today, that we would be strong and courageous in you, that our minds would be transformed with the truth of God, that we are who you say we are. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you've redefined to us through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.